0: International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavagan. Lesson three The Audience and World of a Hero. There are probably a dozen uh, great teachers of craft in the world. No more than that, I would say. The, the craft is everywhere now. Uh, in um, in the 1950s there were like a couple of craft story structure workshops in the whole of California now I would guess there's about 350 within a radius of Los Angeles okay the problem is um, the good ones so for example um, where we are as Patricia said we, we, we do advanced workshops for people who are professional writers and so on and Initially, one of the things I would do, since I can only do two of those a year, you want to screen people. You don't want to waste their time or your time. Um, you'd say, "Well, you at least must have been on a, a story structure workshop." And then they'd come, and you'd realise, and they'd realise they know nothing about what you're teaching. So what I'm talking about, we'll be talking about this week. They just didn't know, even though they'd been on so-called craft workshop Do you, you see what I mean? So. There are probably only about half, well maybe a dozen at most, great teachers in the world. And I'll give you some of their names in case, uh, I'll give you a book list maybe at the end, but there's a man called Robert McKee, uh, Michael Haig, Danny Simon, Ron Ron Super, John Truby, Frank Daniel, David Howard, Linda Seeger. And then uh, there are people like William Goldman, who doesn't teach, but who, uh, who writes books. La Iosegri, his book you should read. It's a basic sort of book. David Mamet, the writer, it's worth reading his book on directing. And then you should read Aristotle just for fun. And then um, you should read all the works of Elias Kazan. Elias Kazan, I'll talk about him later, who's a great director. You probably know him from On the Waterfront, that kind of film, or East of Eden. Lots of films he's done. And then the, the Old Testament of screenwriting are people like Sid Field and Wells Root. These are people whom I respect because they were teaching it when, uh, when no one else was teaching it. They're like the Old Testament prophets, I suppose. Um, and these people uh, agree now. There used to be an agreement on about 70% of what was taught. And now, miraculously, and, and very not before time, uh, it's now increased to about 90%. The agreement is about 90% and I'll just mention the areas uh, before we seriously get into things the areas of disagreement Uh, one is called the scope of the premise and I'll explain what these mean later but if you just note them down they disagree these teachers about the scope of the premise okay they disagree about the nature of comedy they disagree about the inner conflict of the hero They disagree about the need for change and growth in the hero. They disagree about the nature of the inciting incident. These are just jargon words. Like, inciting incident means when does your film or piece of work really begin? Obviously not at the very beginning of the film. So when does the story really begin? And what is the incident, the inciting incident, that begins your story, as it were? They disagree about the nature of or or the scope of that, and they disagree about whether screenwriting is an art or not. Some of them think it's a poor cousin to uh, the novel or to um, theatre. As a matter of fact, of all the writing things, screenwriting is the hardest by far. It is the great art form in terms of uh, writing. And indeed, most novelists are lousy on structure. When you uh, have to, for your sins, say, have to uh, translate a novel into a screenplay, or have to give an assessment of a novel to a producer, say, wants you to say, can this be made into a film? You just have to say, yeah, well, uh, the structure's lousy. The, the, the story structure's lousy. You could rescue the characters and the plot maybe And it's something worth thinking about because what you always will recommend is what's called smash and grab, you know. Maybe grab the characters, grab the premise, but junk the rest. It's structurally unsound. It's like a building that will fall down. And in, in the novel, it doesn't matter. Well, actually, I think that people would become great novelists if they knew structure. But it doesn't matter so much because the imagination of the reader can move over thousands of miles Inside one sentence in the novel, so you can disguise the poor structure as soon as you put it up on a 30- foot screen, the, the terrible structure is there for all to see, and the audience utterly reject it. When I was at film school, this famous film school, um, they gave me one rule on writing in my whole time there, and uh, I was there a long time because they they let me stay twice as long as the course to make these films. They said, the rule is this, Bart. The audiences are stupid and you say everything three times. The audience are stupid and you say everything three times. The audience are smart, smart, smart smart the audience know everything there is to know about story you as an audience oddly enough know everything there is to know about story you know every genre the rules of it what to expect in it and you get really mad when that is not delivered to you the audience is smart 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 they're visually literate, and increasingly so, and they understand everything, even subtext. So what's subtext? Subtext is, uh, you have to understand that as in life, so in film or theater or books, which is that what people are thinking and feeling is almost never what they're saying. and subtext is what they're thinking and feeling. So in a film for example, you can have people having a most terrible row and what's going on is they're falling in love. That's the subtext. And the audience know that. You know, they're making a salad but the subtext is they're about to kill each other. And the audience know that. They understand the thoughts and the feelings. And remember this this whole Art form, visual media, is about making the interior exterior. So subtext is going to be a huge deal for you. And uh, again, Christians of all the people in the world uh, least understand subtext. I have to work out why that is someday. And insist on writing on the nose. In other words, they insist on everything being spelt out. They insist on the inner thoughts and feelings being literally said. And everyone's just appalled. They just go, because we don't do that in life. And it's so appalling when we do it in film or in. And of course, why we do that, we'll come to that later, is Christians are theme driven. Christians are theme driven. They almost never love story. And the dilemma is the only tool God gave you to get to the human heart isn't theme, it's story. Jesus didn't love theme. Jesus is our great theme, but he didn't love theme. Jesus was a Semite. He loved story. For Jesus, I'll say something theological now, for Jesus the theology is the story. The story isn't the little sort of sugar coating you wrap around the theology to pop it into people's mouth. For Jesus, he's a Semite. Understand what semites say? We're, we're all brought up in Greek. Uh, in, in, we're educated for in 2,000 years of Greek thinking. Okay? Semites are storytellers. You know? When a Semite writes the Bible, reads the Bible, he doesn't say, the Man walked down the road, what did the man do? That's a Greek question. What did the man do? That's Greek. Semite says, Why did he do that? The man walked down the road, why did he do that? Totally different story. It's a a storyteller's question, okay? Okay. So, um, Christians and subtexts, one could spend the whole of this week on that, but we're not going to. But uh, we'll come to it when we talk about dialogue. Now, the audience, and here is the key, the audience knows all of these things subconsciously. They don't know them consciously you know these things subconsciously. You don't know them consciously. That's why many of the things I say this week are going to ring huge bells, because you're actually going to understand that you knew this all along, but didn't know it, and that's why you couldn't write, or that's why you couldn't create powerfully and effectively. Okay? And the reason you need to know craft is very simple. It's because the audience know it and they have an expectation, they have an assumption. This audience are very forgiving. They're very, very forgiven. The reason is they've had to put up a lot of rubbish in their life, on television, in film, in theatre, in novels. They're very forgiving. And they'll forgive you almost anything unless you betray them or cheat them. And if you betray or cheat them, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And there's a great saying by William Goldman, which you should write down, which is that um, the trick is to give the audience what they want, but not in the way they are expecting it. The trick is to give the audience what they want but not in the way they are expecting it if you give the audience what they want in the way they are expecting it there is a word for you and the word is hack okay but if you don't give the audience what they want there is a word for you and the word is failure (laughs) So you're caught on the horns of a dilemma, okay? How do I give the audience what they want, but not in the way they're expecting it? And of course the answer is inspiration and perspiration. Originality doesn't come cheap. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was quite right. There is no cheap grace. And. Um, If in your writing you use steroids the audience ban you just like in sprinting or running you know they say steroids cheat (coughs) you pumped up the character cheat cheap grace off the track we're not interested and the odd thing is this and this is the odd thing the audience within the first three minutes of your film or your work know what to expect of you they understand your aspirations certainly uh, I mean, within three shots of a film, if you're you're like this, then you know how talented the person is, what they aspire to, okay? But the audience probably take three, five minutes, but after that, they know what your aspiration is. And a very interesting thing happens. If you are mediocre, they just go into the mediocre vein, and they say, okay, we're in our usual land now, and... The writing's mediocre, the execution's mediocre, the lighting's mediocre. Okay, we'll follow the story because the story, uh, why we'll watch to the end is just to see what happens. Okay? But if you cause them to think you aspire, you're in deep trouble. Because they will trust you, they will say, here's a filmmaker, here's a writer, here's someone who aspires, this is going to be good. And you had better deliver. So they are far less forgiving of you uh, then they would have the hack or the mediocre writer. Are, in English we call it you are hoisted by your own petard. So you better continue the way you set out. So if you surprise your audience, if you delight your audience, if you draw them in powerfully, for goodness sake, deliver, because they will never forgive you. Whereas if you're a hack, they forgive you quite easily, because you're just writing cliché if you're a hack. And cliché they understand, they don't like it but they understand it. Now, this is very important, and of all the things that gives me hope in my calling, it's what I'm about to say next. The audience is very moral, OK? Um, the audience is very moral. It doesn't mean films are moral. <laughs> it doesn't mean the way Hollywood, it doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean novels are, but the audience are moral. And this is a very interesting paradox, okay, whereby the audience have never given up hope. Hope is so deep in the heart of man that human beings, it's the last thing they give up, okay? Hope. And so as a result, audiences expect behavior in films of their heroes that they themselves do not live in life. They go into the cinema, say, or they go, in an, whatever it is, they, in whatever art form you're talking about, audiences often have the opposite expectation that they have in life. Very interesting paradox here. And they are merciless at this level of morality. Okay? So for example, if the hero, uh, for example the great sin, say in film, do you know what the great sin in film is? There's two sins really. The lesser sin, the sin that's almost unforgivable, is boredom. And then curiously enough, and this is interesting, the great absolute no-no for the hero, okay, there are a few lesser ones like if his motivation is revenge or if his motivation is money the audience don't like it. Now you can have those but you have to actually disguise them or you have to have reasons for them. You can't just have them, they don't like it and um, we can talk about that. But the real one is, if, if the hero commits suicide, that's the great unforgivable sin. The audience never forgive that. And, and, when, and I'll talk about that in a minute, uh, when, maybe this afternoon. Um, because for them, it equates lack of courage. Suicide equates lack of courage. And the one thing your hero must be in film, say, is he must have courage by definition, because you're going to take him through all sorts of reversals, obstacles, conflicts. And, if he opts out in the middle of that, the audience just don't understand. What was that all about? Okay. So the audiences are very moral. But let's talk for a moment about the world of the hero. The world of the hero. Because the hero will live in a world. And that world will have its own value system, its own laws, its own limitations, its own hierarchies. And, for example, woe betide you if to answer one of your problems you step outside the logic of the world you've created. So in a film, say, like Back to the Future, which you might have seen this film, well, there's a logic inherent in the world of Back to the Future, which is that to actually get back to the future you have to do certain things, and to get back you actually need certain things. And so they found a brilliant solution to actually bring them back which involved a precise moment in time in the past, an electric bolt of lightning would come down, and they knew it would come because of the old photographs and so on and the the precise dating and the the time the clock had stopped and so on. So they knew they had to be in a certain place at a certain time to get the required energy they needed to get back into the present and um, back to the future. That's a logic. If they had found a cheap solution to that question they posed themselves, the audience would have been very upset. In other words, if they'd broken the logic of the world they established, the audience would be very upset. So once you've established the logic of your world, you have to be true to it. Now you can establish the logic of your world. You can create the world you want to establish. And later on, we'll see the distinction between truth and believability in film. They're quite different things. There's a film I'm going to show you this week called Ordinary People. Now, Ordinary People again uh, won many Oscars. Uh, it's directed by Robert Redford. And it's essentially the drama of a family, a dysfunctional family. Uh, and It's a life-and-death issue inside this family. Whether the son survives is actually a life-and-death issue in this film. Uh, It's not to be taken for granted that he'll survive, that he'll get through the emotional, social, inner turmoil that he's going through, which is not helped by the dysfunction in the family. Um, It's a brilliant film, one of the most brilliant films I know. It's a film that certainly if I'd written it I'd be very very proud it's one of the great films and in this world we actually look at the world of the hero and what we see in ordinary people when you watch this film one of these evenings what you'll actually see is here's a white middle-class affluent world the world of the hero is white middle-class affluent appearances are at a priority okay what people think surface appearance you know keeping up appearances all at a premium in this film as they are in life in white middle-class affluent societies money is very very important but you neither flaunt it nor do you talk about it openly okay so for example the parents in this film are quite wealthy but they don't drive a mercedes 500 they drive a cutlass you know or they drive a pontiac or whatever it is okay Or when people talk about money, they talk about it at the party in whispers in a corner. There's a gap between appearance and reality in this film in the world of the hero. And of course, do you think that's going to have an impact on the hero's life? You bet it is. Of course. You bet it is. And so, um, one of the big questions you're going to ask yourself is what is the world of the hero? What is the world he exists in? all right and into this you're going to actually look at backstory you're going to look at uh, what is the backstory of the hero you can go overboard on this some people spend years developing a backstory for a character I think the rule is this that you should know everything certainly that's going to affect your film and some more possibilities beside. You're not going to put the whole backstory in your film. But you're going to use the backstory probably at strategic points to turn the film, to turn the film dynamically. Something's going to come out of the backstory that's logical, coherent. As soon as the audience see it, they say, that makes sense, I believe that. And it turns the film and drives it in a new direction in a way that nothing else can. And again, when you watch uh, Ordinary People, you're going to see that. You're going to see how... Information coming out of the backstory totally changes the drama, totally changes in a brilliant fashion at several points uh, and progressively the drama in this film. It's one of the great uses of backstory in film. Um, In backstory, the rule, as in many things in film, is less is more. Overall, in writing, the thing to remember is this. Uh, genius is simplicity. Now, as if you have a choice when you write between something that's simple and something that's complicated, you always choose the simple. If there are two solutions, you always choose the simple one. Always and without exception. Can I say it any stronger? In other words, always, always, always you choose the simple one. Okay? And um, with Backstory 2... Since uh, your story is going to take place within a two-hour time frame, since it's going to take place within a half-hour time frame, since it's going to take place within a three-minute time frame, whatever your story length is, obviously the main focus wants to be on this time. So you don't want to be taking the audience... uh, Usually, you don't want to be taking the audience somewhere else. So if you take them into a flashback, you're taking them somewhere else. You're taking them away from this time into another time. And so you have to have a very good reason for doing that. Again, in Hollywood, if you hand them a script with flashbacks in, uh, they fall on the floor. They say, "It's got flashbacks in," and they start to tremble. You know, and before you know it, they're in a fit. They are terrified of flashbacks, needlessly so. And it's based on um, the maxim that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Okay, so people think that flashbacks uh, alienate audiences. They don't. They don't. But there are rules to flashbacks which we'll come to uh, later on uh, in this week. A flashback is what's called a superior structure. In other words, you have to know what you're doing and uh, you have to know a certain number of things about it. Yes, it does distance the audience from your film. It distances the audience from your film. And so you need to work with that rather than against it. You need to use it when you want to distance the audience rather than when you want to not distance. You have to know that if it distances the audience, when you actually take them into a flashback, you must take them in with maximum velocity, maximum power, so they don't even have a choice. If they have a choice, to say, no, thank you. We want to stay where we are. Thank you. We want to stay here. We don't want to go into a flashback. So you give them no choice. Emotionally, uh, you, you, do, you use a technique which is that you, um, you, you, em, you make an emotional cut, which is the strongest possible cut. In other words, dramatic cuts are not the strongest cuts. It's something you learn. When you actually cut, you cut with emotion. When you cut with emotion, the audience have no choice. They have to go with you. So if you're going to go into a flashback, you always make it an emotional cut rather than just a dramatic cut. That's if you're a great filmmaker. If you're you aspire not to be a great filmmaker you can do whatever you like